Welcome to the Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud podcast. Willing to Listen is a grassroots volunteer group based in South Bruce, Ontario, that is dedicated to thoroughly investigating multiple aspects of Canada's proposed deep geological repository for spent nuclear fuel. I'm Sheila Wittick, and I'm so excited to have you join me as we delve into this controversial project. Today, I am joined by Dr. Jason Donov. Jason is a tenured professor at the University of Calgary and has received awards for teaching and outreach. Uh, Dr. Donov teaches nuclear power, electricity, and thermodynamics. Dr. Donov regularly talks with advocates and interested parties all over the political spectrum about various energy issues, especially, but not limited to, nuclear power and climate change. Thanks so much for joining me today, Jason. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Glad to be here. And if you wouldn't mind just taking a minute to introduce yourself for our listeners. Sure. Uh, My name is Jason Donov. I am a senior instructor with tenure at the University of Calgary. What that means is that I have uh, twice the teaching responsibilities and much less of a research and scholarship program than a traditional faculty member. So my focus is on teaching. I like to tell people the wonderful privilege of, of teaching university students without having to spend most of my time seeking funding. That is a bonus. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I find it kind of funny. I really mean it when I say, I think kids today are awesome. I have a lot of hope for our future because I, I look at, at students coming up through university and I mean, some of them are brilliant, some of them are perfectly average, but most of them are wonderful. Like, you know, certainly I have geniuses coming through and it's, it's always really exciting to see that. But I have a lot of students who, you know, regular people, but they're just really good regular people. Yeah. And I, I like them. And I, I like that I get to work with them and I like that I get to, to talk about the world and how they're going to try and make their dreams come true. And it's just, it's so exciting to be part of all these students' dreams. Yeah. And I say a lot around here in South Bruce too, we have a lot of really awesome youth. Um, it's weird that mm-hmm. I say that because I still don't consider myself old by any means, but there's a lot of, they're just really good humans, you know, and yeah. It is refreshing sometimes because you always hear people not so much speak down to the younger generations, but, oh, back in my day, we didn't do things like that. And, you know, I look around and I see a lot of really good humans and it's it's just kind of, it's refreshing. I really like it. Yeah, yeah I, I regret to say that me and my crowd at 20 were not nearly as awesome as the, the 20 year olds <laughs> I'm spending time with these days. <laughs> uh, yeah, I hear you. So anyways, that's. So I've got a a joint appointment where I teach physics and I teach energy issues at the University of Calgary. So this this whole thing started with me teaching about nuclear power. Uh, At the time I got hired, Alberta was looking at having a nuclear power plant. And because they were looking at having a nuclear power plant, they said the University of Calgary should absolutely have an expert who's arm's length from Bruce Power or the government or the Nuclear Waste Management Organization. They wanted to have their own internal expert to teach the students about nuclear. And it's it's been quite clear to me for, for quite some time that uh, nuclear power is not coming in any reasonable timeline to Alberta, which has yeah, put my, my career in a, a bit of an interesting space. But one of the things I was noticing is that we always talk about nuclear in isolation. We, we talk about nuclear as if we are either doing nuclear or we are doing nothing at all. And, and it couldn't be further from the truth. And in and, and our pre-conversation about this, we talked a little bit about where I'm assuming the conversation will go about the importance of electricity and in the modern mm-hmm. world and so forth. Um, so I decided to put together 
an encyclopedia, I put together a course actually that covers the entire energy sector. I, I fondly call it energy for everyone. I wanted to call it power for the people. And I, I thought that was pushing it just a little too far. <laughs> uh, and a few years later, uh, pocket of money opened up. It's, it's a complicated story, not that interesting. Um, but a pocket of money opened up from which I was able to hire some students to work with me to build energyeducation.ca, which is 1,100 pages covering the entire energy sector wow. with nothing more than grading on math, uh, we're, which we're very proud of. And we're, we're very pleased that we're getting thousands of views every day on this site. And we've been translating it into French. We've been translating it into Spanish. We're, we're getting, even, even before that, we were getting use all over the world. And we're now getting hundreds of views a day in, in Spanish and French as well. Wow. So, so yeah, I'm never sure if I should introduce myself as I'm an instructor at the University of Calgary, or I should say I'm the energyeducation.ca guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm still waiting for somebody to go, oh my God, you're the energyeducation.ca guy. You're I that guy. Your I love your site. Like, it's just... <laughs> Yeah, I did. That's funny. I did have somebody go, "Oh, that's you," but yeah, but yeah, that's uh... well, funny. We have we do have people stop us around town here, especially my husband, and they'll say to him like, "Is Sheila Wittick your wife?" And he always does this. Well, that depends. <laughs> like, what are you going <laughs> to follow this up with? Like, do you hate nuclear power? Because if you really hate nuclear, then no, I'm going to pretend she's not my wife. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was I was actually contacted by by somebody from your area, by uh, about something on my website. Oh, really? About. Yeah, and, and I, I won't repeat the person's name here because no, no. that that wouldn't be appropriate. But this particular person was quite concerned that I had said nuclear waste is safely managed. There's an excellent plan in Canada for the safe, long term disposal of uh, of Canada's spent nuclear fuel. Um, Canada's industry leader, widely recognized internationally for the excellent work on how they're handling their nuclear waste. And, and she wanted me to change the encyclopedia. And she proceeded to explain to me as if I knew nothing about nuclear. And we, we actually, we had a phone call, we had several long emails going back and forth. And I'm like, no, I, I'm a PhD level physicist. I teach this at the university level. I have actually advised the nuclear waste management organization on you know, certain things. And no, I, I actually know really quite a bit about the subject. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's, it's funny because there's this, there's this natural tendency to assume that if somebody doesn't agree with me or you or, or whomever, that that must mean that they don't understand it. And, and that, that turns out to be true no matter where you are in, in one's opinions. Mm -hmm. uh, the people who, who are very concerned about nuclear waste are often very convinced that they actually know quite a bit uh, and the people who are very confident about nuclear waste are also often believe that they know quite a bit. Yeah, it's an interesting human phenomenon. It is, uh, sure. Let's see, other, other things about me. Um, I, I play classical guitar. I don't think that's relevant at all, but I, I always like throwing that out there. It's always good to know. Uh, well, you, you know, it's, it's kind of funny as a physicist, people sort of assume that I, 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 I spend all day in my, my lab in my lab coat and I uh, I, I like to go dancing. Uh, I'm I'm a huge classical guitar nut. I, I like reading science fiction, mm -hmm. and and the, the human aspect of this, I mean, I think erodes the the view of me as a mad scientist, you know, trying to take over the world or something. But, yeah, well, uh, and I think yeah. it, it makes you a real person, right? It's not like 
oh, Sheila interviewed that that Jason guy. He's a PhD in physics. It's like, oh no, he, you know, he does real normal things too. <laughs> like, you know, sometimes I think scientists <laughs> or like people with doctorates get this weird, I don't even know how to explain it, but people almost forget that they're people, you know, like yeah. People. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another from from the professional side of things, uh, it, it should be worth worth noting that I am one of the reviewers for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So this is the I'm one of thousands of scientists who reviews the document that goes off to the United Nations to say climate change is real. It's us. It's our fossil fuel use. It's bad. It's started. It's going to get worse. But there's still hope that we can do more. And yeah. we can do quite a bit to, uh, you know, to avoid the worst effects of climate change. And all of that is very much in line with that, you know, <laughs> more than a thousand page document that, that, uh, that got reviewed in some talk to the United Nations. The place where, where there is some uh, disagreement uh, is some people within that, a lot of people in that are like, nuclear is too slow, nuclear... Uh, can't meaningfully contribute, or they're they're very scared about nuclear. And I, I find it interesting that that people who are so aware of exactly how disastrous climate change is going to be are willing to take something like nuclear power off the table. And I am a passionate advocate for nuclear, specifically because I love the waste. All forms of energy generation, all forms of electricity generation produce waste. What's unique about nuclear? is that while the waste on a per kilogram basis can be quite hazardous, those hazards can be managed because there's so little. Yep. The amount of coal that we burn or the amount of oil that we burn or the amount of natural gas that we burn, it's really quite shocking how much less nuclear waste there is than the waste from coal or oil or natural gas or solar or wind. and. You know, my, my professional opinion is we actually need a full portfolio of energy options where we have everything on the table, including, unfortunately, coal and oil and natural gas. There's no way for us to get completely off of fossil fuels, but we have to, we have to as aggressively as possible, get those fossil fuel uses down. Mm -hmm. And the way to do that is, is, is to, in my opinion, the way to do that is to put everything on the table and say, what does this do well? What does this not do well? And, and so forth. But it's interesting earlier when you were saying about, you know, people talk about nuclear and isolation. And I find that happens when we talk about the waste, right? It's always well, nuclear. Mm -hmm. Nuclear has this waste and it's awful. And they neglect to ever talk about the waste from other energy streams or specifically with the DGR, how, you know, the risks or perceived risks associated with geological storage, but we're not going to talk about any risks of doing nothing or doing what we do right now forever. We won't talk about those risks because, you know, we mm -hmm. just want to talk about like, there's, there's no real comparison. It's always, it's always in the, in the opposition realm. You know, this is how we feel it is, but we don't want to talk about how not doing things are bad too. And is looked very much in isolation. Yeah. So in my introduction to energy class, one of the things that I talk about is that we're, we're putting out 30, 35 gigatons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And it, it's kind of it's mind blowing. It took me a while to recognize, just because just we don't think about it in these terms. When you burn coal, when you burn oil products like gasoline, diesel, kerosene, 
when you burn natural gas, where does the waste go? Well, we breathe it. And the amount of waste is phenomenal. I mean, 35 gigatons, if you were to stack elephants on top of each other from here to the moon, that's one gigaton. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that's the amount of CO2 that the world produces from its energy use in less than two weeks. Wow. So when, when I say I love the waste, and, and that's a shocking statement, and oh my God, how can you say such a thing? Well, let, let me try and put it into context. The amount of coal that the earth burns every year, if we put it on train, right? You've seen coal trains, like the, the unit yeah. trains where there's, there's cars. So you put, you put the, that coal on a train, it would wrap around the earth 40 times. 40. 40 times all the way around the earth. And that's just the coal. And we're burning a roughly comparable amount of oil and by weight, a roughly comparable amount of natural gas. Big round numbers, right? Like we, we can go into the details of, of which is more and which is less, but, but big round numbers. When we say we have a huge fossil fuel problem, that's what we're talking about. Hmm. And people say, well, why don't we just do solar panels? I'm like, we should. We should absolutely aggressively produce solar. And we should aggressively pursue and produce wind. And we should aggressively you know, try and do hydro in smart ways. Hydro can actually have a lot of environmental consequences that we often don't talk about. And a lot of those environmental consequences have been particularly bad for indigenous people, mm -hmm. which is really unfortunate. But we're talking uh, another you know, big round number. We use a cubic mile of oil every year, which wow. it sounds really big, but I, I think when you think about it in terms of you're sticking that on a, a train and that's going around the planet dozens of times because a cubic mile is actually, you, you never see anything that's a cubic mile. Mm -hmm. the, the, the human brain can't process what a cubic mile is. But if I'm like, okay, it goes around the planet 35 times, that's something you can wrap your mind around a little more easily. So we have to replace all of that. And, and we can't even replace all. We have to replace as much of that as we possibly can because five-sixths of the world's energy is coming from fossil fuels. Wow. The energy that we use in our society, roughly five-sixths of it is fossil fuels. So when people are like, you know, and it just came out within the past week, they had more wind power than, than hydro or nuclear, or I think even coal uh, in the U.S., Mm -hmm. for for this given short period I think of time. I just saw that too. I just saw that article yesterday or today. Yeah, and, and I look at that and I go, that's great, but it's still only number two and that's only electricity and that's only one country and that was a particular week where the demand was low and the... <laughs> yeah, all, the, all the, the Swiss cheese all lined up to make it a perfect setup yeah, for and, wind that day. And, and I... I, I I don't want to sound like I'm opposed to wind. I'm not. Wind wind does a lot. We just need to do a lot more. Mm -hmm. So there's this, we, we had talked before before you started recording about this, this idea that electricity is really, really essential to our, our way of life. Yep. One of the things that I like to try and introduce people to is the idea of an energy service. So I live in Alberta and people around me 
have strong feelings about energy. And I, I heard somebody say once, well, we got both kinds of energy in Alberta, oil and gas. <laughs> and it's, and, and oh. I, I myself am a huge Blues Brothers fan. So like, okay, you know, props for, for uh, giving a nod to one of my all-time favorite movies. Yeah. But it's fascinating that in Alberta, we often talk about energy as something that we are selling elsewhere to make money. And that I think is an important perspective, but I think it misses an important point, which is the whole reason we are doing nuclear or oil or solar or whatever is because we are getting a, a service from that. Right. So in my energy class, one of the things we do is we go through in a fair amount of detail, home heating, home cooling, food preparation, food storage, lighting, keeping your clothes clean, having potable water. All of these things are services that energy provides. Being able to get food to come to you. All of these things are things that, uh, that, that energy supplies. I would argue, and I would argue pretty strongly, that the most important job is that of a farmer. I, I think farmers are more important than doctors. I think farmers are more important than professors. I think farmers are more important than politicians. I'd really be hard pressed to come up with somebody who's more important to how our society lives and the people who provide food. There are some fascinating graphs. Our world and data has some fascinating graphs that show over time how our population, like over the course of the past few centuries, how our population at large has gone from being 50 to 70% of the population working in food production down to like 5%. Wow. And it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I, I, I never want to insinuate, I mean, I don't want to be a farmer. Um, it's really hard work. It's not <laughs> they, they work a lot. They, they're busy people. Yep. They really do. And they provide, they provide a service that cannot be provided any other way. We can't sit and eat coal. We can't magically wish for food to just show up in our, our refrigerator. But what's fascinating, as, as somebody who lives in a city, our entire infrastructure allows us to ignore farming in a lot of ways. Hmm. And when we're ignoring farming, and I, I think with, with certain, you know, with various supply chain issues coming up, I think food prices are going to be rising in the next few mm -hmm. weeks in some pretty dramatic ways. So we might start thinking a little bit more about farming. But when the, the whole system works properly, we get our food and we don't have to think about it. And this, I don't, I don't know what it is exactly. It sort of depends on where you draw the boundaries, but roughly 5% of the population that is providing food for everybody, they are so essential. And one, a big part of the reason they're able to do that is because of the energy that they have access to. Yeah. It's, it's funny, actually, I said that to someone just the other day, you know, that I have the most respect for farmers. We, we need them to eat and to survive. But at the same time, you know, they don't do it alone. Farmers do rely on other industry to make it happen. And it's, it's, it's an interesting conversation to have, you know, cause if you say that you, people make it seem like, oh, you don't, you don't, you know, respect what farmers do. And it's like, no, no, I do. It's just, I'm just saying they also rely on other industries like energy, like transportation. They do. Um, all of those things. So one of the things that's interesting about, about farming to me is that I don't really think about where my apples come from or where the, you know, where the, 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 the wheat that I buy, you know, it's a commodity, right? It's, it's easily shifted. 
And when we're talking about electricity, the whole point of the electricity grid was to do the same thing. The reason that our grid exists as it does is we want our consumers of electricity to be completely unaware of whether they're getting electricity from wind or solar or coal or nuclear or hydro. The whole point is that when I plug my laptop in, my laptop is looking at the way the electrons are dancing in the wires and it is taking that energy and it's allowing me to have this conversation uh, or to, to play Minecraft or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and my refrigerator does the same thing and my stove does the same thing and my television does the same thing and my lights do the same thing. So the whole point of the electricity grid is to be completely unaware of where that energy is coming from. And that's wonderful from the standpoint of having electronics in your house. The downside of it is that that allows people to forget where their electricity is coming from beyond a plug in the wall. Mm -hmm. What I find also people don't understand even just how the grid system works. I know here in Ontario, you know, because we have South Bruce and there's Ignace that are both looking at the DGR and I see people up north mm -hmm. from Ignace all the time commenting, we don't use nuclear power, so why should we take their waste? And it's like, no, no, you do, though. Like, you do, <laughs> because yeah. you're on the Ontario grid, and the Ontario grid is 60% powered by nuclear, so you do get nuclear power. It doesn't matter that the yeah. plants are all down here in southern Ontario. Like, the power still goes to the grid that goes to your house that turns on your light. Yep. But people don't understand that. And then they yeah. think you're lying to them because they don't want to believe that because they want that to be the reason that they don't take the nuclear waste. And it's, there is this real disconnect and people that don't understand how electricity and the energy sector actually work. Sure. It, much the same way that people don't understand how farming works. If I want to have milk, I've got to support dairy farmers at some level. And if I want to have electricity, I've got to support the, the energy that goes into that electricity grid. Yep. 100%. One of the things that we've seen is in, in the, uh, the class that I, I teach and on the encyclopedia and, and, and in the, this, the research I've done with my students, there is a very tight tie-in where the more access to energy people have, the higher their quality of life. And this, this actually works across a lot of different metrics. We tend to, to use things like uh, the Human Development Index. But you can just do it straight uh, GDP per capita. There's, there's, a, there's a strong correlation that countries that have better access to energy, more reliable electricity, have better health, better lifespans, you know, boom, boom, boom. Basically, any, anything you want to slice it along. And it's, it's energy in general. And then when you get into electricity specifically, it becomes even more tightly tied. What we've, we've noticed when we look at this over time is there seems to be this saturation where Canada, for example, uses a certain amount of power per person. And one way to wrap your mind around this is 100 watts of power. So the amount of power going into a, a traditional incandescent 100 light watt light bulb is the same power that the human body produces from its food. So wow. power, that's, power's that seems a rate crazy. Of, yeah, power is a rate of energy use. So if you, if you take a 2000 calorie a day diet, a calorie is a unit of energy. Mm -hmm. And because power is energy per time, a 2000 calorie a day diet means that you've got a certain power. So the pow this, this idea was first put forth by Buckminster Fuller. And he, 
he referred to this as an energy servant, which I think is a little misleading because it's a power knot. So I, I call it a power servant. So primary energy we're getting from nature, that's equivalent to the food that we eat because the food that we eat is actually giving us the energy to do everything that we do. And if I go for a walk, if I, if I lift weights, if I go bike riding, if I play with my daughter, like whatever, whatever it is, the food that I eat gives me the power to do what it is that I do. Right. And it turns out that that's roughly 100 watts, 100 joules every second, if you average it over the course of the day. So this power servant becomes a useful metric for measuring in human terms how much power we're using. And it turns out that worldwide, we're using eh, roughly 15, maybe 20 power servants per person. So the amount of, the, the rate at which we use energy as a species is 15 times to maybe 20 times what the human body is capable of producing. Wow. That's not evenly balanced. If you go to a country like uh, Madagascar, Madagascar is one of the poorest countries in the world. Um, that's the island off the coast of Africa where the lemurs live. Uh -huh. And, and there's, there's a lot of very poor people there. Um, they would use less than that. And in Canada, we use more than that. And we, uh, people automatically assume, oh, it's because it's cold and because it's big. That's not actually why. The reason Canada uses more is we are wealthy and the particular industries that we have, mining and forestry are hugely, hugely energy intensive. So while the worldwide average is roughly 15 to maybe 20, the Canadian average is 110 to 120. Wow, that much higher. That much higher. So when we are talking about running our factories, when we are talking about mining what we mine, milling what we mill, harvesting trees, all these things, and we can see this in you know in a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis. So Ontario isn't too far from the Canadian average. But if we look at Alberta, where I live, it's twice the Canadian average. Wow. Specifically because of all of the energy we're putting into to getting oil and natural gas out of the ground. Wow. So it's, it, it's really important to remember that when we're talking about having access to energy, that's what allows us to have the economy that we have, to have the life that we have. So without our energy, we would freeze to death starving in the dark. But if we don't change away from fossil fuels, if we don't dramatically increase our use of nuclear, of solar, of wind, we can't actually uh, really increase hydro. There isn't that much hydro left to increase. Hmm. We, we've got a lot of hydro. 60% uh, of Ontario's grid is uh, nuclear. 60% of Canada's grid is, is actually hydro. So there's, there's not really all that many places left to build hydro. There are some. Um, but if we don't aggressively pursue this, we are also going to starve to death in the dark because climate change is going to hit our food supply. Climate change is going to make it difficult for farmers to grow that food. Climate change is going to make it hard for us to feed people. It's going to be hard for us to maintain our houses in the coming weather catastrophes as climate change intensifies. 
nuclear is an important part, not all of, but an important part of that solution. So for decades now, we've been getting carbon, basically carbon-free electricity from nuclear, and we've been making waste. But that waste is a solid with known hazards that we know how to manage. And because we know what the hazards are and we know how to manage it, people have already set aside money to build a deep geologic repository where this waste can be safely stored in perpetuity underground. And all the waste is accounted for. It is. It's also a huge, I don't like to say bonus because that sounds like the wrong word, but like a huge positive. It's a good feature. You know, like we know where all the fuel rods are. And a lot of people don't understand that either. I remember when I first started working at Bruce Power, we were told, you know, like we know where every single fuel bundle is. We can tell you if that bundle is waiting to be put in a reactor, if it's in a reactor, if it's in the pool or if it's in dry storage, I can tell you, we know where everyone is, Mm -hmm. which is pretty amazing when you think about it. So many energy streams don't do that. We are the only industry that does that. And, and that is a double-edged sword. I mean, there's a reason that that is necessary. Mm-hmm. Certainly, there are problems with the disposal of solar panels, and we should be tracking our electronic waste and, and, and so forth. But the, the hazards of a solar panel going missing is not the same as the hazards of a nuclear fuel bundle going missing. Right. But I, I do point out that it's, it's, it's a little surprising um, accidents with zebras than with, with lions. And, and when somebody explained it to me, it was like, wait a second. No, this makes sense. I look at a zebra and I wrongly think, oh, it's a striped horse. Like, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I was actually at the zoo a couple of days ago here in Calgary. And I was looking at it and I go, oh, yep, still looks like a striped horse. I mean, it's a cute striped horse. I like seeing the striped horse. And I looked at the enclosure that the zebra is in. And I was like, yeah, seems like it's good enough to hold a zebra. It's, you know, it's, it's got a fence and keeps me out, keeps them in. And I was looking at the lions and the lions were we're out doing the uh, 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 kind of, you know, morning staking, you know, the yeah. staking out its, its territory. And it's, you know, looking at this, I'm like, yeah, that is a, that is a creature that is easily capable of, of tearing me limb from limb without really thinking about it. Um, I mean, if it were even playing with me without meaning to do damage, it would still destroy me. And then I looked at the enclosure that it's in. It's, it's completely, you know, way more solid, four meters tall with, yeah, like, I can't get in there. It can't get out. And that's that's how we deal with nuclear, right? Like we look at a, a spent nuclear fuel bundle and we we know, we know it has a hazard to it. We know that the radiation coming off of that can cause serious problems. So we don't let it. Right. And we we know a lion is dangerous. So we enclose it properly. When we're looking at something like a solar panel, it's like, well, how, how could a solar panel hurt us? Well, the answer is, more people die every year trying to install solar panels on the roof than have ever died as the direct result of nuclear power. Yeah. Likewise, if somebody's, you know, mauled by a lion, that, that causes a lot of out, outrage. And, and rightly so, right? right yeah. Rightly so. If we're going to have lions in a zoo, we should absolutely be, be monitoring those lions properly. But an accident with a zebra, people are like, oh, well, I mean, it's a zebra, I guess. It's a wild animal. And yeah, but, but it, what did the guy it, do to end up getting killed by the zebra? It must have been the guy's fault, <laughs> yeah. not the zebras. Yeah. So from that standpoint, yeah, you know, we do know where all of them are, and we know where all of them are because we need to know where all of them are. 
But because we need to know where all of them are, we know where all of them are. Yeah, it is kind of that double-edged sword. But it's also one we can keep in the scabbard, mm-hmm. right? Like it's it's not, oh, nuclear is hazardous, therefore it will kill us. It's nuclear is hazardous, therefore we have to be careful with it. And therefore we are. Yeah. You know, shout out to the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission. Uh, that is the, the federal, you know this, but your, your, your listeners might not. That is the federal regulatory body that manages all things nuclear. And it's, it's fascinating to me that we have an awful lot of radiation safety issues here in Alberta where we have absolutely no nuclear power whatsoever. But that we is have radio- Yeah, well, we have, we have radioactive sources. Right. So because we've got these sources, the CNSC has to be involved. And because the CNSC is involved, every time somebody doesn't use it properly. And it's fascinating when I talk to people like you who who work in the nuclear industry, and I talk about the, shall we say, haphazard way some of these sources are are treated out in the oil sector. It's like, um, yeah, it's, I I mean, I, I don't know what the numbers are, but I suspect people are actually more likely to get harmful radiation exposure working in the oil fields than they are working in a nuclear power plant because you know you're playing with lions. Yeah. And see, I always say that too. We had that ingrained in us. It was our first week of training. I want to say first week. And it was that conversation of, you know, something, if something goes wrong anywhere in the nuclear industry, the whole industry wears that. It's not, it's not like, oh, this happened at Bruce Power bad Bruce power. It's like, no, no, that's the whole industry. The whole industry wears that. And you know, that that's kind of what I think about, about the DGR argument too, when people make the, make the claims that all the industry just wants to bury their waste and forget it. I'm like, the industry is hyper aware of how important it is to maintain safety, that they're not going to do anything (laughs) that isn't, you know, going to work or like they're not going to put themselves in that situation because they know (laughs) that if it goes poorly it looks bad on everybody like they know that they're hyper aware of that yeah i have several student former students who work for the the regulator the the canadian nuclear safety commission and it's it's wonderful hearing them talk about, yeah, you know, no, we're, we're putting these, these guidelines out. And then I, I talk to people from OPG, people from Bruce Power, people from New Brunswick Power, and they're like, yeah, you know, they say 10 and we're like, okay, we're going to do one. Like it's, yeah. and that's, that's very different from when I talk to people in the oil sector where it's like, okay, the regulator says 10, so we can't get caught doing more than 10 very often, I guess. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's just it's so different, and and I look at the engineering that's going into the, the nuclear waste disposal site, the DGR, as you say, and this, I don't want them to do less. I worry that the engineering that they're doing is convincing people that it's more dangerous than it actually is. Yeah, we <laughs> we do have that conversation a lot with people. You know that sometimes it seems a little overdone. But then you're like, you can't do less because the people yeah. who already think it's not safe if you're doing less are just going to use that as ammo for you not to do it because you're not doing enough. And it. Oh, yeah. From a from a scientific standpoint, has has your has your podcast ever covered the the Oklo Gabon nuclear reactor? No, I want to though. I really want to. 
we could we could do that on a, a separate podcast if you like. We should totally should. Um, but the you know the the quick thing is we have geologic evidence that when you stick stuff like spent nuclear fuel in a rock, either like what's at South Bruce or the ones that's up in Ignace. I mean, I, I have my own preferences to where it goes, but both are very good, very safe, both easily, easily surpass the, the requisite level. I, I have opinions as to which one it should go in, but, but both are so far above and beyond uh, what's, what's necessary. Like we look at what has happened in the past and we see that these fission products don't go anywhere over the course of more than a billion years. Right. And that was without engineering. That was just nature being nature. And now we're we're looking at taking what nature has done to do even better. It's and it's not like humans are trying to be better than nature. Humans are trying to work with nature in this case. Uh, and that's that's why I'm so confident that fuel in the, the deep geologic repository would in fact be a very safe way to handle this. Yeah, and I think for me the the major positive of geological storage is the fact that it doesn't require people it's nice that people can be there in the long term and if we monitor it long term and if we have to do maintenance long term whatever it's nice if that happens but it's not necessary whereas you know if we keep doing above ground like we're doing it's an infinite unknown amount of money that needs to be put into it to maintain it the buildings need to be maintained the the storage containers need to be maintained. The waste needs to be repackaged. You know, people say that repackaging at the DGR site is going to be hazardous, but totally neglect to look at that same repackaging process every 50 to 100 years forever. <laughs> like they just forget about that. And it's like, I have a lot more faith in geology than I do humans. <laughs> I would much rather put my faith in the rock to keep us safe than for humans and 20 generations where I have no idea how they're going to feel about this. You know, I don't think it's right that we put them in a situation where they have to deal with this. You know, I, I feel very strongly we should do what we know or what we believe is best right now to try to make it easier for them, not hope they can do better than us and just pass it off to them. Yeah, I think we're passing off enough problems to them with, uh, with climate change. <laughs> More than enough problems. Well, thank you so much for the invitation to come and talk to your listeners. Um, and if thanks if for I coming, you, if I could trouble you to throw the uh, energyeducation.ca link in the uh, in the yeah, comments, absolutely. I didn't know it existed, so I'll be checking it out too. All right. And that's it for this episode of Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud. I look forward to further investigating Canada's plan for spent nuclear fuel along with all of you. Thanks so much for joining me, and remember. We don't have to agree on anything to be kind to one another.